Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, please do open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, if you have been with us any length of time, we know that it is our discipline as a church to sequentially work through portions of Scripture, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And because that is what drives us as a church, what drives us is the Word of God. If you have lived life or been around the church any length of time, you know that there are always loud voices at work seeking to be heard. Uh, there are always shifting opinions. There are constant waves and wind of uh, doctrine and ever-changing thoughts and practices. But whatever, what never changes, we know, is the Word of God. It is that one reality that has been forever settled in heaven, as the psalmist writes. And so in a day of so much confusion and mixed messages, and ever-changing agendas, it is a wise person who is determined in their heart to be controlled by the Word alone. And so in light of that, we have been working through the Gospel of Luke in particular for a long time. And so we come this morning, finally, to chapter 9. This launches a brand new section in the Gospel. I have been looking forward to this chapter for many different reasons. Uh, This is a very important portion, uh, and because there are some changes that now take place. The progression of the narrative is now going to pick up a little bit. The focus is now going to shift onto the disciples. They have, for the most part up to now, been on the sideline. And so at this particular juncture, they become significant. And so I am going to do something a little bit different this morning. Uh, This is not really going to be a typical sermon for me. Um, We're going to take a look at the text a little bit, but as I got into it this week, I really realized that I wanted to touch on a few different topics just due to some of the realities that are in this passage, uh, but certainly in many of the passages that will come. And so I'm just going to be jumping around this morning, Um, might feel like I'm going from topic to topic, and so if it does, it's because I am. Um, And so for some of you, you're not going to be hearing anything new this morning. For others of you, some of this might be brand new to you, uh, but I do think that this is important because I do think it will help sort some things out, especially as we keep making our way into this gospel. And so this will be more of a theology than an exposition uh, that is a sort of verse-by-verse teaching. And so before we begin, let me read for you these verses that we will be in, Lord willing, for the next couple of weeks. Uh, And so again, this is Luke chapter 9. And we are going to be in verses 1 through 9. This is a transition passage. We've seen a couple of these so far in the Gospel of Luke. But as we'll see, it will yield for us some very important truth. And so again, Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Here's what this historian writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. He said, And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag, 
nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the city. And as for those who do not receive you as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, And he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. One of the things that you have to do every time you come to a passage of scripture is you have to determine how you're going to interpret it. Uh, That is basic. In fact, whenever you read any text, you are interpreting that text through something called, fancy word, a presupposition. Presupposition. Uh, That is to say, whether you know it or not, you have certain things at play anytime you approach a text, you are reading it through a particular lens, which will then in turn determine how you understand the meaning of what has been written. And so everyone reads the text of Scripture through the lens of certain presuppositions, and because everybody has them without exception. Many of you, I know, are aware of what some of your presuppositions are, and many of you are not aware of what some of your presuppositions are. And in my experience, in fact, most people are not aware of what their presuppositions are. And your presuppositions are framed and shaped by certain realities. Sometimes they're shaped by your current contemporary culture. Sometimes they're shaped by your family. Sometimes they've been shaped by your own personal experience. Certainly when it comes to translating and interpreting the scriptures, much of that is translated by your own upbringing, personal upbringing within a particular church tradition. But whatever they are, understand that you have presuppositions. Every single one of us do. And so you are an interpreter. Uh, In fact, you can't not interpret. Anytime that you read anything, you are always asking the question of what does this mean? Doesn't matter if it's an email, doesn't matter if it is a novel, doesn't matter if it is the Bible, you are always interpreting, and in fact, it is impossible for you not to interpret. And so it is critical that you understand that you always have a set of working presuppositions that in large measure are determining how you arrive at a particular meaning. You are always reading through that interpretive lens. And so as you approach the text of Scripture, one of the lenses that you have to settle in your own mind if you're going to be a responsible reader and interpreter of the Scriptures is to resolve the critical question of whether or not you should read a particular text through the lens of what is typically referred to as either descriptive or prescriptive. That is to say that whenever you come to a text of Scripture, you have to ask the question of whether or not that specific text is simply describing something that happened in history, or if it is prescribing something that you should therefore go and do. And that is a massive interpretational 
question, and specifically when it comes to the Old Testament, but especially when it comes to the Gospels. That is a critical issue when dealing with what are called narrative texts. And so are the Gospels simply history that are describing a narrative of what happened, or are they in some way prescribing something that you should therefore go and do? That is the question. Or is it both and? And if you see it as both and, that is that it's both describing and prescribing, then what are the criteria for determining which sections should be read descriptively and which sections should be read prescriptively? In other words, what are the contextual, consistent, that's key word, consistent contextual indicators within the text itself that you can point to for determining the interpretational approach? And depending on where you land on that question, that then in and of itself becomes your presupposition. And make no mistake, that is a massive issue when it comes to interpreting the Gospels. And because, whether you know it or not, every time that you read the Gospels, you are either consciously or unconsciously making that decision. In fact, sometimes you'll read a portion of the Gospels, and without even meaning to, you're already trying to figure out how it applies to you, right? That is what we do. You have perhaps inserted yourself into a particular passage, or you have made the decision that there is some kind of application, if not at least implication, for you. In fact, this is an important question, especially when it comes to the book of Acts, for example. In fact, probably more of an issue when it comes to the book of Acts. There are many who read the book of Acts and immediately start trying to figure out how they can make their church look more like the early church, right? See this all the time. They see the power, they see the miracles, they see all the wonderful stuff that you see in the book of Acts, and then they look at their church. And so since their church isn't what they're seeing in Acts, they now start trying to copy what they see, which, by the way, is what launched the entire house church movement and in many ways has also launched the charismatic and Pentecostal movements. They are trying to copy what they see happening in the book of Acts, hoping that somehow all the crazy but wonderful things that they see happen there in that book will somehow happen for them as well. And the question, of course, is why? Why are they doing that? Well, because whether they know it or not, they have made the hermeneutical, fancy word, or presuppositional decision that Acts ought to be read prescriptively. That is, again, that it's in some way prescribing what we should be doing. In other words, they view the book of Acts as in some way revealing or modeling what ought to be normative for the church across all ages and at all times. Now, they'll not be able to point you to a single command that's actually been given to them in the book of Acts, and because, again, it is simply a narrative account of what happened, but they have presumed that what happened in Acts should be in some way the normative experience for the church, and therefore, they seek to go and do likewise. Hence why it is a presupposition. They can't tell you why it should be read prescriptively based upon any contextual indicators within the text itself. Rather, they have simply presumed that because this is what we see in the Bible, it should therefore be true for us as well. This is what God gave us. This is our model. And so we should seek to do likewise. 
And so the result, as you know, is that there are all kinds of approaches for doing church. There's all kinds of understandings for maybe what the Christian life should look like, because many have not first settled the important issue when dealing with narrative literature of whether or not it is intended by the author, both the human author and divine author, but whether or not it has been intended to be descriptive or prescriptive. Now, I am not going to give you an entire class here this morning on hermeneutics, which is the art and science of Bible interpretation. Maybe I'll be able to do that one day, but let me just lay out my cards here on the table for you. One of the most basic things in hermeneutics when it comes to any passage of Scripture is that you have to answer the question first and foremost of what type of genre you're dealing with. In fact, that is essentially the very first step. The Bible, as you know, has been written in many different genres. You have history, you have law, and even that, you have to figure out what kind of law. Is it apodictic or casuistic? Apodictic is a clear do not. Casuistic is sort of case law or if-then type of scenarios. You have poetry, you have proverbial and wisdom sayings, you have epistolary literature like Paul or Peter and you have apocalyptic and symbolic. And so you have all kinds of genres. And so if you're to rightly interpret the meaning of any given text, you have to figure out what type of genre you're dealing with. And because if you try to read the Song of Solomon, for example, which is an allegory about the nature of marital love and romance, if you try to read that in the same manner that you would read the book of Genesis, which is history, you will not understand Song of Solomon. If you try to read the Proverbs like you would Revelation, if you try to read Paul's letters like one of the minor prophets, again, you will not discover the intended meaning or what is typically referred to as the authorial intent, that is, what is the author's intent. And why will you not understand that? Well, because poetry is not history, history is not epistolary, and epistolary is not symbolic. And so genre matters. Genre, in part, determines meaning. And so when it comes to rightly understanding the meaning or the intent of an author, you must first, again, understand the genre. In fact, remember, the goal of reading, whether you know this or not, is to think an author's thoughts after them, right? That is the goal. And so unless you understand the genre or the structure and category of the literature in which the, the author is seeking to convey his meaning, you will not rightly think their thoughts. The meaning of any text has always been packaged within the medium of genre, and so if you get the genre wrong, you get the meaning wrong. And so when it comes to the historical narrative and the historical genre of Scripture, of which the Gospels, as well as the book of Acts are, it is important to understand that that is historical narrative, and the fact that it's historical narrative means that by its very nature and the nature of what it is, it is descriptive. In fact, that is what history is. It is describing what happened. And so if you think that the book of Acts for example, is describing what happened, but also at the same time somehow prescribing what should be normative for the church, just understand that that is a presupposition. You have presumed that upon the text. And that is not, hear this, that is not the nature of historical narrative. And yet when it 
comes to the scriptures, people do that kind of thing all the time. In fact, none of you, I don't think, would pick up a history book of the Civil War, for example, and think that it is exhorting you to somehow do something, right? Or that the intent of the historian was to somehow show you that this should also be true for your life as well. Now, certainly you can learn principles from history. Certainly it's revealing important truths. Certainly there are implied warnings and all sorts of illuminating realities that can be discerned. But the intent of the historian is simply to describe what happened. Now, they may have certain emphases, they may have biases, they may even have certain agendas in mind, and so unless it is just pure propaganda, the intent of any good historical writer is simply to communicate the events and facts of what took place. And so the intent of historical narrative, by the very nature of what it is, is intended to be descriptive. And so understand that the Gospels and the book of Acts have been written or not been written primarily to show us what to do. That is key. Gospels or the book of Acts have not been written primarily to show us what to do, or in the case of the book of Acts, what your church should be and look like and what should be normative. Rather, these are divine accounts of some very important historical realities, These are documents that record the unique, and that's key word, the unique working of God in a very unique time of history. In fact, you will have to go back to my very first sermon on the Gospel of Luke, but I labored to show you that that actually was Luke's intent. And so in chapter 1, if you can get there quick, you can follow along, but in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Notice how Luke begins, and what I tried to show you is I compared Luke's introduction to many of the introductions to his contemporary historians, and you find that Luke writes in the exact same way. He is an ancient historian. And so in chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4, he states this. He says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things fulfilled," past tense, "...of the things fulfilled among us." Just as those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. That's the person to whom Luke is writing. And why? Why has he done this? Well, so that, so here's the purpose statement, so that you might know the exact truth about the things which you have been taught. That is Luke's purpose statement. So notice, it is not so that you might know what to do. Rather, it's so that you might know what took place. And as we have been seeing in Luke, his purpose in writing so that you might know is so that you might know what to believe. And so ultimately, this is about belief. And so understand that this is history. This is describing things that happened, things that came about, past tense. And by the way, the book of Acts is Luke's second volume. So this is a two-volume history. And so that too is a record of things fulfilled. And so if you are trying to approach the Gospels and the book of Acts, like Paul's writings, where you think that you're supposed to go and do these things, that these things are supposed to be happening to you, understand that that is a presupposition, and I would argue a faulty presupposition. 
Rather, this is historical narrative, and the nature of historical narrative is not intended primarily to be prescriptive, but descriptive. And again, there may be helpful principles, there might be applications that you can draw for your life personally, and, but do not make the mistake of thinking that whatever you see in the Gospels or the book of Acts is supposed to be somehow normative for you or even normative for the church. In fact, because this is history, you should understand that the Gospels, and especially Acts, are recording an extremely unique time within the broader timeline of what's known as redemptive history. In fact, the Gospels, remember, are technically still under the Old Covenant, right? Now, they are part of our New Testament, which is what can throw us off sometimes and make this a little bit confusing. But in terms of the chronology, the New Covenant's not yet been inaugurated. That doesn't happen until Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost. And so certainly what you see in the Gospels is not intended to be prescriptive for you, and primarily because we're not under the Old Covenant, but the New In fact, it'd probably be easier if the Gospels were just part of the Old Testament. In fact, the Gospels are recording a very unique time where the Old Covenant is coming to an end. And why? Well, because the Messiah has arrived, and yet at the same time, the New Covenant's not yet been enacted. Christ still has to purchase that covenant in his blood, and it still needs to be enacted on the day of Pentecost at the outpouring of the Spirit. And so the Gospels don't really cleanly fit into the Old or New Testaments. And similarly, I would also say that much of the book of Acts is recording a very important hinge period, that's a key word, a hinge period in the timeline of redemptive history where you see the transitioning between these two massive covenants. And so the book of Acts as well is an account of some unique things that were happening where all of history is being extremely disrupted by the breaking in of the new covenant. In fact, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, you had apostles in the book of Acts who were given incredible power to demonstrate divine apostolic authority, but in a time, and this is key, in a time in which there was not yet a New Testament, think about this, there was not yet a New Testament where you could arbitrate matters of divine truth. And so the book of Acts, written again by Luke, is a historical account describing what happened at the very beginning of the new covenant coming into being. In fact, the entire point of Acts actually is, if you wanted to sum it up, it is to demonstrate God's faithfulness in the spread of the gospel as he is faithful to that Abrahamic promise to bring in the Gentiles. You see the gospel going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so again, the result is that some unique things were happening because this was the very beginning of the new covenant. That is key. This was the launch of the church. It was its inception. And so you saw here a rapid spread of the gospel, which necessarily required some unique circumstances and power to kick the whole thing off. And so I don't want to belabor the point, but So much confusion happens in the church simply because we have not asked the question of what is my working presupposition for determining the meaning but also intent of a particular text. And so how you understand the genre of the Gospels and Acts is very important. Is this prescriptive or 
descriptive. Is this saying that I should be seen and performing miracles myself? Is this saying that I should be raising dead people? Is this saying that I should be speaking in tongues? Is this saying that I should be hearing the audible voice of God? Was the early church somehow more faithful than the church in our day, which is why they got to experience these sorts of things? Or is this an account of a unique hinge point in redemptive history in which Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is simply seeking to demonstrate the faithfulness of God during a very important transition between two covenants. And where all kinds of strange, non-repeatable events were taking place because it is that great hinge moment of redemptive history. And so again, let me lay out my cards here by saying that the Gospels and Acts should be read primarily descriptively, not prescriptively, because this is historical narrative. This is not an epistle where Paul or Peter are giving instruction to the church. And so again, that is not to say that you can't draw important implications from these texts. In fact, I do it every single week when I preach from Luke. If Luke was not important or didn't apply to us in some way, I wouldn't bother to preach it. And so that is not to say that these things don't have implications for your life or for the church, but the criteria for determining what those implications are will be very important for you to figure out. And that is where a consistent and solid hermeneutic comes into play. But again, a class for a different time. Now, the reason that I take the time to say all this is because chapter 9 in the Gospel of Luke begins a section in which the disciples of Jesus now become incredibly prominent in this story. And so if we're not careful in how we understand the intent of Luke in his writing, what often happens is people will either intentionally or unintentionally insert themselves into the places of these disciples, and because, after all, we too are disciples, but just 2,000 years later, right? And so we can read ourselves into this text. And so we'll come to a passage like we do this morning and sometimes wonder why we don't experience things like this. Or we'll come to a passage like we have before us, as many teachers do, and I have heard them, and they will try to teach this as being in some way prescriptive for you. In fact, entire schools of so-called supernatural ministry are based upon passages like this. In fact, since this is the very first time that the disciples, as we're going to see, are commissioned for any kind of ministry in the gospel, there are many who think that this is therefore the model paradigm for true discipleship. And so if you can approach the gospel as historical narrative, where again, it is primarily descriptive, not prescriptive in its authorial intent, things become much clearer. And so while this is a descriptive passage where there are some unique things happening for this unique group of men, I would be remiss if I didn't say that there are also some important principles that will apply to any disciple of Christ, and we will see that unfold, Lord willing, over the next few weeks. But with that, let us jump in here just to the first couple of verses, and we're only going to look at the first two this morning, and I'm mostly going to use this time to make some observations for you. And so again, this is not a normal sermon for me at all. Um, I don't even know how this is going to go. 
but everything you're going to be getting today is essentially the introduction to the actual sermon. I sat down to write a sermon this week, and I only got an introduction for you. And so notice how Luke begins, verses 1 through 2. He begins here with just a very broad summary statement that essentially summarizes the essence of verses 1 through 9, which again we're going to look at next week. But he states this, he says, And he, meaning Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing Now, up until this point in the gospel, as I mentioned, and as you know, the disciples have essentially been on the sideline. And so everything that Jesus has done, he has done alone. He has done all of the teaching. He has done all the miracles. He has been gathering men to follow him. He has been in deep confrontation with the Pharisees and the religious institution. And so he has been doing all of that, but he has been doing it alone. And so he has been, up to this point, been ministering in the region of Galilee for about a year and a half. Luke records his Galilean ministry from about chapter 4 through chapter 9 in verse 50, which we're still in. And so this has been about a year and a half, and he is now officially halfway through his three-year ministry. And so at this juncture, actually starting in verse 51 of chapter 9, he only has roughly 18 months left until he faces the cross. And so he is just about finished here in what's referred to as the Galilee, which is a region in the far north of the nation. And so in a very short time from now, he will begin to make his way toward Jerusalem. That will be the second half of the Gospel of Luke, which again starts in verse 51 of chapter 9, so it's coming up very shortly. But for the first roughly 18 months, he has done everything, and he has done everything alone, and exclusively he has been doing it in this region of Galilee. And so we come to a very special section in which for the very first time, Jesus now is going to give his disciples some responsibility. And again, because he doesn't have much time, he now has to prepare them and begin the next phase phase of the discipleship process because he has not much time. And so this is the very first mission that Jesus will send his disciples on, and This is a very short-term mission. In fact, you can see them already returning in verse 10. And so this was very short-term. In fact, this was more about the disciples than it was about the ones to whom they would minister, which is usually the nature of short-term missions anyway. And so this is more like an internship than anything else. And so the entire point of the passage here in verses 1 through 9, as we'll see unfold, is to begin to teach these disciples some very important lessons on the nature of true ministry. He wants to teach them from the outset some significant principles as they are entrusted with their very first task. And so they have not yet taught, they've not yet healed, they have not been given any power or authority to do anything. Rather, their task to this point has been to simply watch as Jesus does the ministry. They were to observe, they were to make observations, they were to start putting some theology together, especially as the message of Jesus would deeply contrast with the message of the Pharisees and the religious institution, that apostate system of Judaism. And so they were to watch him closely and come to some conclusions about him. Hence their statement back in chapter 8 and verse 25 of who then is this man who commands even the winds and the water 
and they obey him. Their singular task has been to watch Jesus and come to a decision as to who he is. That is what is happening. And so they have been observing from the sideline. They have been watching him, and so they are now ready for the next step of discipleship. They're now transitioning from that stage of merely observing to now doing. And that is always the process of discipleship, by the way. always begins by a person simply watching and listening and making observations and asking questions. And so before a person can go and do, it is critical that they simply watch and observe for an extended period of time. And then as they observe and as they ask questions and as they begin to learn, they should be wrestling with the question of whether or not they really want to follow. And then once they make that decision, there comes the day in which they must be entrusted with something. They must be given opportunity. And so as they're given opportunity, it is then your job to watch and see if they are faithful. You are to discern if they are truly interested in picking up that same baton and walking down that same path. And that was the method of Jesus. Gather some men, let them observe, give them a task, find out if they're faithful, and then give them some more. That is the process. In fact, that was Paul's command to Timothy as well. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, when he instructs Timothy there regarding the church in Ephesus, he says, There you might remember, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will in turn teach others to do the same. And so this is always about multiplication. This is always about constantly seeking to reproduce yourself through others who will in turn do the same. There is a time in which you will need to move past merely meeting with someone for their benefit alone, and you need to begin to exhort them to now go and do the same for others. Remember, true discipleship is making disciple making disciples it is not sufficient merely to make a disciple you must make a disciple making disciple and the way that you do that is by pouring your life into faithful people in fact it is not hard for me or pastor bruce for example to figure out how we should allot our time we are always under orders to spend our life pouring into those who are faithful with what they have been taught I am not looking for someone who is merely teachable. I am looking for someone who is faithful with what they are taught. And that is, frankly, what you should be looking for as well. You will find yourself drained empty if you keep giving your time to those who never seem to do. And so this is what Jesus would do. And so here, notice, he gives them their very first task. And so I am just going to make some observations here to help set up the scene for next time. But notice, first of all, whom he calls. This is whom he calls. Notice Luke says that he calls together the 12. Now, up until this point, it is likely that not all 12 disciples have actually been in the same place at the same time. And so it is very possible that this is the first time. And this is interesting, at least in the storyline of the gospel, because remember, Jesus at this point had many more than just the 12, right? In fact, in chapter 10, just one chapter over, we're going to see him send out the 70, two by two. And so here, interestingly, he begins with the 12 alone, which, again, highlights the significance of these men in particular. And I would say, as well, begins to clarify some of these issues versus on prescriptive versus descriptive. 
In fact, if what we see in this passage is supposed to be normative for all disciples at all times, then why does Jesus grant special power and authority to these 12 disciples alone, despite the fact that he's got many others? And so there is purpose to this. In fact, he is focusing, as you know, on these 12 very particular men because he is getting them ready for a very specific and unique role. In fact, when they come back in verse 10, notice Luke identifies them not as the disciples nor even as the 12, but they're all of a sudden referred to as the apostles. Again, identifying that these 12 are in some way distinct And so you can see the progression. First of all, they're disciples. Then Luke identifies them as the 12. And then eventually he formally identifies them as the apostles. In other words, the 70 are not of the same status. That is the point. The 12 here are unique because they would become his 12 apostles. Of course, the exception being Judas, who was replaced by Matthias in Acts chapter 1. And then Paul being that untimely apostle who was sent not to the Jews like these 12, but to the Gentiles. And so these 12 are called here, notice, from the beginning to be set apart for a special purpose. These were the sent ones, which is what the term apostle means, verse 2 and verse 10. They were sent ones, and they're going to be sent to the Jewish nation in particular. In fact, a lot of people wonder why there were 12 apostles, what's the significance of the number 12? Well, the simple answer is because there is a very important symbolic link with the 12 tribes. Remember, Israel was made up of of 12 tribes, and the heads of those 12 tribes were the 12 sons of Jacob, Jacob whose name became Israel. And so the fact that Jesus chooses 12 apostles, that is actually an amazing move because what he's doing here symbolically is he's essentially constituting a new spiritual heads of the tribes of Israel. In other words, on the flip side, he is effectively bringing judgment upon the nation. That is what is happening And calling these 12 men to become the new spiritual heads, he is solidifying the nation's hardened unbelief and rejection of their own Messiah. In fact, it is interesting, isn't it, that Jesus does not choose at all a religious person to be among the 12. He does not choose a Pharisee. He does not choose a scribe. He does not choose a Sadducee. He doesn't even choose a rabbi. Rather, Jesus goes so far opposite the institution because the entire religious system is corrupt and apostate. They have rejected him. They have exceedingly hardened hearts. And so he could not find one person from the entire religious establishment to be an apostle. And so what does he do? Well, he goes about as far from... Jerusalem as you can, Jerusalem being the capital of the nation and therefore the center of all Jewish religious life. He goes as far from Jerusalem as you can, namely Galilee, which is all the way up in the north, to choose from among the most common, ordinary, underwhelming men. In fact, not only does he go to Galilee, but as we're going to see a little bit later on in chapter 9, Peter makes that great profession of Jesus as the Christ up at Caesarea Philippi. That is as far north as you get in the nation. He is so far from the establishment. And so in verse 1, notice for the very first time, he then brings the 12 together, but to constitute this new, true Israel. 
fact, in chapter 22, in verses 29 through 30, he even says to them these words. He says, and you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant to you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And then here it is. And you will sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so again, these are the new spiritual heads. These will be the leaders of the true Israel who have recognized and received Israel's true Messiah. They have stood by him. In fact, that is exactly why in Revelation 21 and verse 14, that their names have been engraven upon the foundation stones of what? Of the new Jerusalem. And so these 12 men are very special in redemptive history. And again, not because of something unique to them as individuals, but simply because they have been sovereignly called to a very unique task. This is a sovereign appointment of some very ordinary men. Again, they are not the religious, they are not the noble, but they are important by virtue of their sovereign calling. Second observation, notice, this is what he has given to them. Second half of verse 1. This is what Jesus has given. He states, and he gave to them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Now, those two items of power and authority are very important um, because if you have authority but you don't have any power, you're of no use. And if you have power but no authority, then you are lawless. You are out of your jurisdiction. And so here, notice Jesus gives them both power and authority and notice over all the demons and to heal diseases. And why? Well, verse two, and he sent them out for what purpose? To proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Now that is a singular task there involving two components. Notice verse two, they are to proclaim and perform. They are to proclaim the kingdom and they are to perform healing. Now, this, again, is very interesting because almost without exception, any time that you see healings or miracles in the New Testament, it is always, and hear this, it is always accompanied with proclamation. In fact, that is the observation I want to make. There are many times in which you will see proclamations without miracles, but you will be hard-pressed to find miracles without proclamation, which is to say then that the miracles in some way function to serve the message, right? That is their purpose. In fact, you have heard me teach on this a number of times, but the purpose of miracles is always to confirm the message of the messenger. And so if two people show up to town claiming to be a prophet, both claiming in some way to be speaking for God and both preaching very different messages, which one do you believe? Well, you believe the one who raises dead people, in fact, we see this described in several different places. First of all, we see it with that great confession of Nicodemus, of Jesus in John chapter 3. When remember Nicodemus, who was a high teacher of Israel, he came to Jesus by night and he said in verse 2, we know, so we know that you have been sent from God. And how? Well, because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so they knew that God was authentically with Jesus as opposed to the fakes and the frauds and the charlatans and all the Jewish frauds, which we're going to talk about next time. And, and so how did Nicodemus know that 
God was authentically with Jesus? Well, because of the signs. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Again, a clear statement as to the purpose of miracles. They serve always to legitimize the authenticity of God's messenger. Peter as well, in Acts chapter 2, and verse 22, on the day of Pentecost, stated in that phenomenal sermon, which essentially launched the entire church, he said, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, how will with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. So again, what, what is the purpose of miracles? Well, it is to confirm the message of God's true messenger. They are to bear witness that what this person speaks is God's truth. In fact, you will never see miracles in the scriptures just for the sake of miracles. You will never see healing just for the sake of healing. Rather, they always serve a greater purpose, and that is that they are to demonstrate a derived authority from God himself. In fact, that is exactly why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 11 through 12, when he is defending his apostolic authority to the church there at Corinth, he states there about halfway through verse 11, he says, I should have been commended by you. He is rebuking them. I should have been commended by you. And why? For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles. And why? Well, because the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. And with all perseverance. So this wasn't just once or twice. Rather, he was able to demonstrate consistently his apostolic authority. And how? Well, by signs and wonders and miracles. So again, the clear purpose is to bear witness to true authority. That is the issue. Even the church at Corinth, which was such a broken church when it came to the issue of spiritual gifts, even they understood that the purpose ultimately of signs and wonders was to establish God's authoritative message through his apostle. In fact, this is why the 12 apostles plus Paul toward the end of the New Testament are already beginning to sort of fade in their healing and miracle ministry. You see the signs and wonders already beginning to fade. Their authority had been well established by that point. And so there was no need for the church to wonder any longer as to who were God's authoritative leaders for the church. Everyone knew that Christ was the cornerstone. The apostles had laid the foundation of the church off that cornerstone. And now the church, even to this very day, is being built up on that foundation, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. So you have Christ the cornerstone, the apostles are the foundation, and now the church is built up on that very important work. In other words, the church is being built up on their teachings, which we now have passed down to us through the word of God. In fact, the apostle James as well, the half-brother of Jesus, confirms that miracles essentially were already beginning to fade in James chapter 5 and verse 20, when he says that if any of you is sick, he is to do what? He is to call for the elders to come and pray. So why aren't they commanded to find the person with the gift of healing in the congregation to come and heal them? Well, again, it's because miracles and, er, miracles and healing served a unique purpose in a very unique time, and that is that they were always to authenticate God's authoritative 
messenger, and primarily the apostles. Again, 2 Corinthians 12, 11 through 12. In fact, that is reiterated again in Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 3 through 4, where the writer there states, So how shall we escape if we neglect so great of salvation after it was at first spoken through the Lord, talking about the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom, after it was at first spoken through the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard, who's that talking about? That is talking about the 12 apostles. They're the ones who had heard. They were the ones who bore witness to the resurrected Christ. So it was spoken through Christ and then confirmed by the apostolic witness. So it's, it's the same message, namely the message of the kingdom. And then here it is, and God also bearing witness with them, that is the apostles, how by signs and wonders and various miracles. So what was Jesus' foundational plan to spread the kingdom and expand the church after he was resurrected and ascended? Well, it was to spread it through the apostolic preaching of the apostles as it was accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles. And so again, let's say one of these 12 apostles show up to town and you don't have anything yet objective to test their claims as a preacher of the kingdom, well, you can believe their message. And why? Because they wield tremendous power. And remember, this was a day in which they did not yet have a New Testament. They didn't yet have anything objectively authoritative by which they could test the claims of a preacher, and so Jesus delegated the same signs, and that is key, he delegated the same signs to the apostles that he did to authenticate their witness of him. They were extensions of him. And so what is the implication for us in our day? Well, now that we have the apostolic word inscripturated to us in the Bible, there is no need for miracles. And because there is no authority, hear this, there is no authority that needs to be confirmed for you. And why I would argue that the ongoing gifting of miracles is no longer in function in a normative way. And is that to say that miracles can't happen? No. But it is to say that the regular gifting of miracles is no longer needed as a normative reality. And why? Well, because we have the once-for-all delivered to the saints faith. That is, the once-for-all completed Word of God, Jude chapter 1, verse 3. We have the Bible. We have the full authoritative Word of God to the church. And so we don't need a miracle to confirm to us which word is God's Word. We have it. This is our once-for-all delivered authority by the way, that is exactly why MacArthur's statements of the Pentecostals and the Charismatics, I think, is spot on. They have such an aberrant theology that so contradicts scriptures, yet they claim to wield the greatest manifestations of signs and wonders. And so the question is, why would God give his power to the people with the worst theology? Again, if the purpose of miracles is to confirm his message, why would he be giving that kind of power to those with such a faulty message? to those who, frankly, in many cases, don't even preach the gospel. And so, again, the function of miracles is to confirm the authenticity of the message of God's messenger. And so, again, you will 
see a lot of preaching in the New Testament without miracles, but you will not see miracles without someone preaching or teaching, and specifically preaching the gospel. In fact, you see it again in verse 6 here of chapter 9. Notice he states there, and departing, they began going about among the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And so again, as you know, Jesus is most concerned with the message. The message is what matters. The message ultimately is what saves. And so the healing here served to authenticate the authority of that message. It is what made, in fact, their message believable. And so here Jesus sends them out to essentially do what he did. These disciples become 12 extensions of Jesus for the purpose now of expanding his influence. He is now multiplying himself. These are 12 replicas who do his exact bidding. In fact, notice they preach the same content that he preached. Content of their message was the message of the kingdom of God, verse 2, which of course is synonymous with the gospel, verse 6. They performed miracles in the same manner that he performed them. So this is a derived message. This is a derived authority. This is not their message, not their power, not their authority. Rather, they couldn't do anything unless he granted it. And notice there didn't need to be a supernatural school or a time of training to learn the various techniques for how to harness the power of God or to unleash it or to tap into it. Rather, he just said, you now have power. Notice they don't hold a healing service. There is no tent meeting. They don't run a live stream. They certainly don't do a TV special where you can send in your money. In fact, next time, they're going to be forbidden to take any money for their ministry. You can imagine how rich healing people can make you. In fact, that right there should be the cause for some tremendous skepticism toward the many who today are making incredible profit off the desperation of some very desperate people. And so not only do these disciples do what Jesus did, but they do it in the same way that he did it. Notice they go out. They always seek out the needy. They never exploit them, but only deliver them. In other words, whatever they did as sent ones or apostles, effectively, it was Jesus doing it. That is the point. And why? Well, because it was done with his power. So these are extensions of his ministry. He is expanding his influence. And again, not something given yet to all disciples. Rather, it was first given to the 12 alone. And so I take the time to do this this morning because I really do want you to understand how unique of a time this was. Again, this was a very important moment in the history of redemption. And so as you come to the Gospels and you begin to see certain things happening, especially with the 12 disciples, it is critical that you settle the issue in your mind as to whether or not you ought to read this as descriptive or prescriptive. Is this telling us what happened in the life of the 12 disciples who came became the 12 apostles, or is this teaching us as well what ought to be normative for anyone who would call themselves a disciple of Christ? And my position, if it's not clear by now, is that these are 12 ordinary men, but who serve a unique role in the sovereign plan of salvation at a very unique time in redemptive history. And so we will see some incredible things begin to happen now as we enter into a new section 
And so having a proper hermeneutic will help you interpret as you seek to understand how some of this stuff should be applied. Now just a third point, quickly. Just a third observation this morning, and then we'll finish it out. But what I want you to notice at the end of verses 1 and 2 is that he gives them power and authority, but notice power and authority to do what? This is a power and authority, notice, to heal. Gave them power and authority over the demons and to heal disease. And so what do they do in verse 2? They perform healing. You ever wonder why Jesus' miracles always dealt in the realm of healing and sickness? You ever thought about that? I mean, if the purpose of miracles was to make people believe, then why didn't he just fly up into the sky and do a twirl for the people? That'd be pretty impressive. Why didn't he just disappear and reappear and be magical and whimsical? He had legions of angels at his disposal who would obey the voice of his word. That'd be a pretty good showstopper. Why didn't he just make a pile of money appear out of thin air? I mean, that would garner followers if you want followers. There are a lot of things that he could have done that were miraculous. And so the question is, is so why did his miracles, it seemed, always involve the idea of healing and sickness, of liberating the oppressed? Perhaps it's obvious to you, but the answer is because he desired to demonstrate compassion. In fact, that is what this section will teach us. In fact, that will be a very important lesson for these disciples as they begin to learn the nature of true ministry. In fact, more than merely compassion, his intent also was to demonstrate his ability. Hear this. His desire was to demonstrate his ability to deliver from his compassion. Deliver them from the various powers that sought to destroy them. In fact, as you might remember, the last several sections, there has been an emphasis on that word of sozo, that is the Greek New Testament word for salvation as we often translate it. But the word sozo is actually the idea more purely of deliverance. That is what the idea means, the word means. We talk a lot about how we, quote, got saved, but I think a better phrase would be that you have been delivered. That is what the term means. It's a deliverance from oppressive, destructive powers, namely sin and Satan and death, but most importantly, of course, from that final destruction, the destruction of the soul. And so this is actually more about compassion and deliverance than it is about power and authority. And so of all the miracles, all of his miracles, whether it's Jesus or it's Jesus working through his disciples, all of them are demonstrating the compassionate power to deliver. Think about the leper. Think about the lame man. Think about the centurion slave, the raising of the widow's son, the prostitute, the calming of the storm for the disciples, the delivering of the demoniac, all these stories that we have seen. This is all about delivering people from destruction. And so the nature of his miracles, think about this, but the nature of his miracles had to fall in line with the purpose of his message which is a message of deliverance. And so he always worked within the paradigm of human suffering. He always delivered people from the throes of hardship and the worst forms of human experience. 
And so I like what one man said on this. He said, so what is this saying? Well, that when the Lord picks his messengers, he wants somebody who will faithfully preach salvation and somebody who will manifest compassion. That is the kind of messenger the Lord wants. You will never take the gospel to people with passion in your heart unless you have compassion for their suffering. And you know that the gospel message at times is a hard word, is it not? It is a good word, but it can be a hard word. The gospel, which by definition is something preached to sinners, is something which confronts, makes no apologies, it cuts, it offends, challenges, does all kinds of things to offend the natural sinner, but what aids that message in its deliverance is a physical demonstration of what that message seeks to accomplish for the soul. And so the gospel ultimately is a message of deliverance. It is a message that brings hope to the oppressed, brings hope to those who are dead in their sins, dead in their rebellion against a holy and a righteous God. It is a message of repentance, a message of how to find forgiveness regardless of the depth or the scope of sin. But what will help people understand the gospel and that it's far more than mere religious thoughts or an intellectual worldview is when they see deliverance happening, when they see compassion taking place. And so you will probably never cast out a demon. You will probably never heal an incurable disease. You will probably never make a lame person walk. But there are some very practical ways to demonstrate compassion to a world filled with suffering, sin, and hostility. I do not like the social justice gospel, as it's come to be called. You understand my position on that, where social justice is an end in and of itself, it seems. But beloved, do not let that movement, or any movement for that matter, steal the very important place of compassion in works of service in the cause of the gospel. In fact, in the divine wisdom of God, works of mercy and compassion are what make a gospel of merciful, compassionate deliverance believable. And so we are out of time, and before I start preaching, let me quit. But next time we'll get into verses 1 through 9, and we're going to begin to see this a little bit in action. There are some very important principles here that we can learn. And so we might not be numbered among the 12, but there are some tremendous lessons for us. And so that is what is to come, Lord willing, next time. And so let me fumble any sense of a good conclusion this morning by exhorting you to make sure you come back. Let's pray. And so, Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for any time that we can gather as a people and sit under your word and the truth of what you've given us to know. I do pray that as we begin this important chapter that you might guide us in this process, that you might give us wisdom, that you might give us discernment as to what it means to be a true disciple, what it means to be one who follows you and professes Christ as Lord. May we be given a renewed sense of passion as to what it means to be ambassadors for your kingdom. 
May we learn all the more to every single day love what you love, but put away what you despise. May the time spent in this chapter and coming days, as you permit, be a season of forging and shaping of this church into what you desire us to be. For we do desire to be useful in the cause of the gospel. And so we do ask that you would make us ready for any task and all tasks that you might desire of us. And so as we now turn to song, we pray that you would be honored in the singing of your truth. May these who are here this morning reaffirm in their hearts what they believe. And those who need comfort, be comforted. And those who need reminding, simply be reminded in both song and in remembrance of the Lord's death and the Lord's Supper. And most of all, may the Lord Jesus be praised. For he is our hope and he is our king. And so I do ask these things in his holy name. Amen.